Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. Their design, Mack Weldon, is to be the most comfortable underwear or socks or shirts or hoodies or undershirts or sweatpants, you get the idea, and more that you'll ever wear. And our listeners this week, of course, can get 20% off their first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code GOODSEATS. Yes, 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. Enter that promo code GOODSEATS. Here's our show. There are many historic baseball stadiums across the country, including one in Birmingham, Alabama. Chris Wrinkle shows us the hidden history of Rickwood Field. A monument to America's game that has stood the test of time. There's nothing else like it left. Everything else has gone by the wayside. Before the Gray Lady broke ground, where the green monster loomed over hitters and the vines climbed the walls of Wrigley, there was Rickwood Field. Somehow another Rickwood Field has managed to survive. In the early days of Birmingham's steel industry, industrial titan Rick Woodward built a state-of-the-art ballpark in the shadows of Birmingham steel mills. Over a century later, Rickwood Field still stands, now America's oldest ballpark. Was he baseball crazy or was he uh, a good businessman? And the answer is he was both. In the early days of the sport, it was the home of Birmingham baseball. You know, it's minor leagues have been here forever. I mean, this is the oldest ballpark in the country, and I was lucky enough to play here for two years. The Barons saw future Major League stars pass through their gates on the way to the show, and it was the home of the Birmingham Black Barons, the juggernaut of Negro League baseball in the South. There's a lot of local people who uh, grew up here going to games with their dad and their granddad. And uh, so they have an emotional attachment to the park. Through its history, close to 200 Major League Hall of Famers have played a game at Rickwood Field. Names like Wagner, Cobb, Page, and even the Babe. It's become a, a it's become a, a, a bucket list item for a lot of true baseball nationally. Welcome to Good Seats, still available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations, friends. My name is Tim Hanlon. How are you? I uh, appreciate you're coming by our little nest of uh, intrigue. We like to call it Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. We thank you for uh, coming along, finding us in podcast land, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, uh, whatever you're doing to uh, to ingest this week's episode, we appreciate it. Uh, and hopefully we will reward you today, especially you fans of uh, old-time baseball, in particular the Negro Leagues, uh, the endlessly fascinating uh, slice, big, fat slice of baseball history, as we like to do uh, on a regular occasion as we uh, talk this week with our guest Bill Plott uh, down in the Alabama way as we talk about uh, perhaps one of the uh, greatest juggernauts, I guess, that ever was uh, in the Negro Leagues, plural. We'll get into that. The Birmingham Black Barons and, and Birmingham, Alabama, a uh, a fascinating uh, sports town on a number of different levels, especially as it relates to this show. And we'll get into that in a couple of other episodes. Uh, as people well know, certainly Birmingham, Alabama has been one of those uh, uh, chronic uh, cities that have been uh, hosts to uh, numerous professional football leagues over over the years, including the uh, the late AAF uh, Alliance of America Football, which we've talked about in a couple of previous episodes. 
Uh, but uh, we're not talking about football this week. We're talking about baseball. And I think it's lost on a lot of people, especially baseball historians or just fans of, of baseball generally, that about how rich the history is uh, of the sport of baseball in Birmingham. And as you heard in that little uh, anecdote at the beginning of the show from, uh, let's see, the next star station or stations uh, in the four states area, Joplin, Missouri, being sort of the center of that. I'm not quite sure if that was. Uh, next stars, uh, uh, ABC affiliate station, K O D E, or if that was, uh, their, uh, NBC affiliate, uh, across town, uh, which goes, uh, uh by, uh, KSN, uh, or, uh, is a particular FCC, uh, jargon K N, excuse me, K S F N TV. There you go. I, you know, I, I think I've, I've covered all my bases, uh, no pun. Uh, but that little, uh, report that you heard there was uh, courtesy of those, that station or stations, and it uh, it essentially gets into uh, a big part of this Birmingham Black Baron story. And that's the uh, story of of Rickwood Field, which is the uh, the longest continuously uh, operated and running baseball stadium in the United States. Yes, in the United States, Birmingham, Alabama. Hard to believe, I think, if you think you know all about baseball, but it's absolutely true. And uh, we're going to get into not only the, uh, the legacy and the history of that field with our guest Bill Plott this week. Uh, but also, frankly, this fascinating tale uh, of this team known as the Black Barons. And, and while there were many legendary teams in, in that of the Negro Leagues over the uh, over the decades uh, in the early part of the uh, ninth, uh, excuse me, the 20th century, the Birmingham Black Barons were uh, not only a good on a regular basis, but uh, lived on uh, almost in an indefatigable manner. Uh, as the leagues themselves came and went. So the Negro Southern League, which was a, a minor league, and then the, the first Negro National League. But then as these uh, uh, Negro Leagues kind of solidified and even became uh, national and top tier in the uh, in the Negro baseball structure, uh, Birmingham was, was a constant presence. And the Black Barons in particular were absolutely uh, a part of that. And um, we're going to get into all of that sort of history. Uh, there's a lot of the, the baseball legacy uh, generally, as well as within the Negro Leagues that uh, that tie their uh, their history and their stories uh, to these uh, Birmingham Black Barons of well, various uh, the Negro Southern League, the Negro American League, the Negro uh, National League, uh, you name it. They seem to be in just about every uh, major and minor uh, Negro League that that was. And uh, and we're getting into that story of baseball, uh, Negro League style uh, in the city of Birmingham via the Black Barons coming up. In just a uh, moment or two. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we want to say hello to our new pals at Dollar Shave Club. And actually, they're not new pals, at least not for me, because uh, I've been using Dollar Shave Club for, geez, almost two years now. And uh, what a happy circumstance it was when uh, they reached out to say, hey, we'd like to advertise on your little show there, Tim. And we appreciate them doing so. So uh, we love the fact that uh, people who uh, we already use as uh, products and services uh, reach out and want to sponsor the show. So that's awesome. And, um, you know, I, I so I can, you know, with authority say that uh, the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products is uh, is is amazing and awesome. Uh, and, and they spent years developing, crafting and refining just about everything. And, uh, you know, how I look, but also how you can look and feel and smell, frankly, your best. Uh, you name it, they've got it. And um, I've been uh, happy to use it to most of their offerings for, you know, like I said, a good two years or so. And I encourage you to uh, hopefully try the same, you know, and as amazing as their shave stuff is, and obviously that's what they're known for at Dollar Shave Club, they're, they're also way more than just razors. The Dollar Shave Club has you essentially covered from head to toe. They've got everything that you need to shower, shave, style your hair, brush your teeth, and yes, even wipe your, you know, posterior 
area. You know, yeah, everything, you name it, you know, every little nook and cranny, uh, they, they, you know, they can handle it for you and then some. And Dollar Shave Club can keep you automatically stocked up on all the stuff that you use, too. Use what you want whenever you need it. And whether that's, you know, once a month or a few times a year, you just set it up there uh, and they will uh, replenish, as we say as often or as little as you'd like. And uh, the good, the cool news there is you never really have to waste time at the store wondering, uh, you know, what you're getting is, is any good. Uh, and, and Dollar Shave Club, you know, as a member, you'll know that uh, what you're getting is always of the highest quality. And of course, we've got an offer for you to try, especially around the holidays, uh, to kind of get uh, a little uh, taste for yourself, so to speak. Uh, right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test and use uh, and, and benefit from their ultimate shave starter set, which has basically everything that you need for an amazing shave. That's the executive razor, uh, shave butter, their prep scrub and post shave dew, of course, Ooh, the post shave dew. Uh, and the best part, of course, is that you can try it for just five dollars. That's right. Five bucks. That's it. After that, they restock uh, a box uh, that comes to you uh, when you want it of regular size products at their regular prices. Uh, But for now, to get started, get your ultimate starter set for just five dollars at dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. And for just five bucks, you're going to get that uh, ultimate shave starter set it's a great way to get a uh, a sampling of how it all works and uh, i'm pretty certain that you're going to find it to be a uh, a renewed environment and a great way uh, to uh to, to shave and uh and, and feel your best and um we appreciate dollar shave club for being a sponsor of this fine little show here and uh we hope you take advantage of our our cool offer uh courtesy of them and of course, us. All right, let's uh, put that offer aside and uh, assume that you've uh, already closed your web browser and made your uh, major purchase there. And uh, we uh, now smoothly segue into our great conversation with our pal Bill Plot as we go down Alabama way to talk about the Negro League heritage and history and frankly, just the, the, the amazing stories behind the Birmingham Black Barons. And uh, here's our chat. Obviously, the Negro League's an endless source of fascination and, and not sort of uh, always obvious uh, stories. But, you know, it, what does seem to me uh, to be pretty certain is that the, the Black Barons were absolutely one of the sort of more established and longer lasting, I guess, and longer maybe surviving uh, teams of all of the Negro Leagues, uh, plural. Uh, and uh, I guess maybe we can just start with generally... How did you even get interested in this team and and how do you sort of uh, uh, almost sort of specialize, I guess, in in knowing so much about them and uh, in their in their Negro League history? Well, I actually started. uh, I was working at the Aniston Star over in East Alabama in the mid 60s, and uh, I was told that uh, that Ty Cobb had played baseball in that city. Well, I got really curious about that and started looking into it. And sure enough, he had played with a minor league team there in 1904. And uh, I I was a reporter, and I said, well, this will be a good feature story for me to write. And I got to digging into it. And I found, as I got into the old newspapers, that everything that was being published about that year that he played there was totally incorrect. The name of the team, the name of the league, it was just all incorrect. And so that really got me into doing sports research. And uh, 
I really got into baseball the big way, and I started covering high school football to pick up a little coffee money on Friday nights, and uh, that made me curious about, well, these two teams that are playing tonight, how many times have they played before, and what's this, you know, the, what's, how does the series stand? That's all. The sports is just full of stuff like that, but that's what got me really into sports research, and then along about 1970, uh, Peterson's book, Only the Ball Was White, comes out, and I'm looking at it, and here's all of this mystical stuff here that nobody knew anything about in these people, and uh, that opened the door to me on the Negro Leagues. The thing that I like to do research on is is uh, something that's new, uh, something that I can call mine, you know, that nobody else has fooled with. And that was certainly the case with this, and eventually led me to the Black Barons. And uh, all that has ever really been, everybody knows about the Black Barons is Piper Davis, Willie Mays, and the World Series in the 40s. That's about it. It's almost as if there was the team did not exist before or after that. And so the purpose of my book, of course, was to fill in those gaps on either side of the 40s. Well, okay, so you're a journalist by trade then, so obviously you've got right. an, an air of spe- uh, skepticism and or research, I guess, in terms of, and and having discovered, you know, uh, already a, a thread of baseball sort of history or uh, assumption, I guess, uh, not to be true. Well, so why the Negro Leagues then in, in particular, right? So... Ty Cobb, minor leagues, uh, all that kind of stuff. But I I guess that's also part and parcel of having grown up and lived uh, for some time in Alabama and anywhere in the South, frankly, where, you know, the the, the stain of of racism and, and segregation and all that kind of stuff. And, and in the sports world, right, you know, the Negro League baseball was uh, a thriving, robust, uh, albeit uh, not equal, shall we say, uh, pursuit of sport. I, I, I guess that's sort of all entwined into your, the, the interest in uh, the story of not only the Negro Leagues, but the, but the Black Barons and, uh, specifically. Yeah, I, when I was looking at the, the rosters such as Peterson had been able to put together uh, in, in, in the appendix of that book, I, I would see these Birmingham Black Barons and Montgomery Gray Sox players. You see, my interest was, was very much in Alabama sports. Uh, I did a book on the high school basketball state tournament, and I did two or three uh, little books on uh, football in, in different counties in the state. So my, Alabama was, was my focus. And here were these Alabama teams and players that nobody knew anything about. And so this was fertile territory for me to mine, you know. Well, okay, so Birmingham and sports generally, right? I, 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 we could devote a whole other show to, I guess, the more modern sort of versions of that, right? The latest being the aforementioned uh, Alliance of American Football, right? And football in particular, yeah. having p- made many stops uh, of challenger pro leagues along the way. But this this goes way back, right, where, you know, Birmingham, a, a relatively uh, thriving uh, metropolis uh, in the South, right, there. Uh, absolutely was uh, a baseball and certainly football as that became a thing. So perhaps maybe you can give a, a sense of sort of the Barons' earliest of years, which was this Negro Southern League, which, you know, a couple of different names of the Negro Southern League, but and obviously also part of uh, other research work that you've done. But, but maybe you can give us a sense of 1920 or so and how the Black Barons and the Southern League sort of sort of congealed, and then we can sort of walk through the rest of the story from there. Sure. 
Uh, we're actually in the Birmingham area. We're very excited. We're going to host the uh, Jerry Malloy Negro Leagues Conference from Sabre next year. And next year will be the 110th anniversary of Rickwood Field, the oldest ballpark still being used in America today. And it will be the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League and the Negro Southern League. So those are big events that we're looking forward to hosting next year. Here. That actually speaks to the fact that Birmingham is such a uh, an important part of all of those things then, huh? Right, right. It really is. And uh, it's always been a good sports town. And, and a lot of these uh, uh, minor leagues or whatever football leagues that started that they were in that went belly up like the Alliance Birmingham always had pretty good attendance, and uh, it was the the other parts of the league that seemed to falter and bring it all down in, in most cases. So, but yeah, good sports, good sports town. In 1920, uh, there was a meeting in Kansas City, in which the Negro National League was formed, and this was the first uh, organized league type play for for Negro baseball players to have a, have a venue in. And a month after that, uh, black Southern businessmen met in Atlanta and formed the Negro Southern League. So these two things were came about at the same time, pretty much. And uh, Birmingham was a charter member of the league. And... Uh, it was. It kind of got started from that standpoint, right there. So why uh, at Rube Foster? Uh, we've talked about him and and, and sort of the organization stuff and, and uh, generally and, and other things, not just at the Negro Southern League, but why the Negro National League not choosing or selecting a Birmingham versus it having to be part of the Southern League? Well, you know, most of those teams, as I recall, were all in pretty much the Midwest, maybe a little bit into the East and the Midwest. So you had the geography of it to start with. And uh, there were no Southern teams at all in the Negro National League. So it was just uh, an, an open door in the South to form a separate league. And and you had cities, uh, you know, like Birmingham and Atlanta and Memphis and Nashville that were all available, all had uh, uh, black baseball being played. You, you know, town ball and and, uh, and industrial teams were just common all over the country in those years. And God knows Birmingham with their steel industry and the coal mining industry had uh, probably as many or more company teams than any other city in America, maybe. I mean, that's off the top of my head, but, but I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration. Interesting. So this Southern League, though, was more of a, what, a feeder or a minor league sort of cousin, shall we say, to the Negro National League? Or, or was it was it less uh, defined than that? Well, I think eventually it evolved into that. It became a feeder league. And uh, it had a, a rather uh, inconsistent history. Uh, it lasted the first time from 1920 to 1923, and then it went away until 1926, and that was kind of interesting in itself. In 1923, Birmingham and Memphis just totally dominated the league, and in fact, um, Memphis, the, the only games that Birmingham lost were to Memphis, and uh they were so dominant that at the halfway point around the 4th of July, the traditional halfway point in baseball seasons, uh, Birmingham applied for membership 
in the Negro National League, and Memphis did also. And they were accepted mid-season and taken into the Negro National League. Now, it, it should be noted, though, that the Southern League that particular year was faltering badly. They only had maybe five teams that could be positively identified as being in the league at that point. So Birmingham and Memphis moved over mid-season to the Negro National League and played out the season there and then played the next two years in the Negro National League. So they did make the jump relatively quickly, I guess, to this. Uh, they did. Yeah. And maybe you can explain sort of the 20s because that seemed to be somewhat checkered. And I think it's it's a little bit of Black Baron's uh, stability issues as well as that of Rube Foster and the, and the Negro National League's ability to kind of, you know, keep it together, too. Yeah, well, in, in after the 1925 season, and, and as plans are being made for 1926, there was a lot of unhappiness among the Midwestern Negro National League teams because of the long travel jumps to Birmingham and Memphis. And it was a, considered a financial liability. So they really... Uh, were not excited about keeping Birmingham and Memphis in the league. And that kind of coincided with a new effort to start a Negro Southern League. So Birmingham and Memphis uh, went south again, so to speak, and, and joined the, the reformed Negro Southern League in 1926. Right, this is this is interesting. So obviously I'm, I'm quite naive and I'm, I'm looking at this without sort of nearly the, uh, the level of expertise that, that you've uh, done with your research. But so this Negro National League and the Negro this Negro Southern League, um, it almost sounds to me like they're almost I don't want to call them interchangeable, but it feels to me like a, a number of these Southern League teams, in particular, you're mentioning Memphis and Birmingham, uh, not only felt their uh, abilities to, that could be on the on the senior circuit, shall we say, but it almost feels to me like it could have been more of an equal or maybe just a a separate league, so to speak. In the professional ranks, I I guess I'm trying to get a sense of the quality of play maybe between the two. It almost feels a bit kind of equal, albeit you know economically not viable as they soon determined to that travel and and keeping the teams more concentrated is probably the better way to go business wise. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that the Southern teams were over the long haul, would have been really as com that competitive with the Negro National League teams. I think that the level of talent was much better in the Negro National League, although there were many good players in the South, and many of them, of course, gravitated to the Negro National League. Uh, those teams in that league were looking at the South and uh, quite interested in picking up some of these players and you know offering them more money and grabbing them up when they could. All right, so so let let's put it in context then with with Birmingham and the Black Barons in particular, right? Because essentially the twenties seems to me relatively checkered for them. Right, there are a couple of seasons in the Southern League, then a couple of cups of coffee in the National League, back to the Southern League, back up to the National League, and then back to the Southern League, kind of through I guess the mid thirties. So maybe before we sort of get into their their ultimate leap to that sort of next level, which is the next part of the story, maybe you can kind of give a sense of sort of what this team was all about locally playing. And obviously it still was the center of, of baseball attention, I guess, in Birmingham, regardless of which league they were in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. The, uh, and there was a, there was a tremendous amount of support for it in the city of Birmingham. And uh, when they joined the Negro national league mid season, there, 
the the white newspapers noted that Birmingham had moved to the quote major leagues unquote that, because the the Negro National League was considered that much better at that point. So this was considered a big deal for Birmingham to get to do that and to move up to that level. And they did fairly well the first year. They played about uh, that second half of the season. They played about 400 ball, which is it's not bad at all. Well, and they they had uh, you know they didn't. Uh... In their their senior league cups of coffee, right? They the, they did you know they did they they held more than their own, right? I mean, now for example, nineteen twenty seven, they lost you know in the league playoffs to the ultimate uh, the eventual champion, the Chicago American Giants. Strangely or oddly, or maybe not too oddly, a very I think attached to a one Rube Foster, but I digress. But still, I mean, they were certainly competitive, I guess, when they had their chances at playing in the National League. No. I think to some extent they were, yeah, they were. But uh, you know, when when I got into this, uh, one of the things that, that, that I, as I've said earlier, the '40s seemed to be all anything that people really know anything about the black parents. And and you, know, it's somewhat understandable with Willie Mays and Piper Davis. Uh, you have two outstanding figures in in black baseball right there, and so. And, and the World Series with the Homestead Grays and, and those kinds of things. But I got really fascinated in researching the 20s and 30s. That there were some tremendous ball players back then that nobody really knows anything about. And uh, I got, uh, I'm digressing a bit here on this too. I got really, uh, really interested in trying to find pictures of a couple of these guys. One was a catcher named Poindexter Williams who uh, had started in the Industrial League, and he was with the Black Barons, and he played at a couple of other teams for a while. But he was always hanging around Birmingham and was on and off the team many times, and and later in life ran a a cafe in Birmingham. I really wanted a picture of him very much because the the only thing I'd ever seen was a fuzzy one that was perhaps taken off of the team photograph, and he was just almost unrecognizable. The other player was Buford Geechee Meredith. And uh, I don't know if Geechee came from, if he came out of the Carolina coast where, where the, those people were, or if he just, if perhaps that was the way he talked that he picked up the nickname. But at any rate, he is, he played with the Black Barons perhaps the longest of anybody. He was with the team uh, from, uh, 1920 to 1929, he left for 1930 and played in another city and then came back in 31. Uh, he would have been playing again in 32, except that he was killed in a mining accident early in, in 1932. Because most of these guys had, uh, you know, day jobs, so to speak, or off-season jobs. And uh, Meredith uh, was electrocuted in a mining accident and left a wife and three kids. And uh, I, it was really interesting to me when I would look through city directories uh, to try to get some uh, check names, the spelling of names and things like that. Meredith was the only person who ever showed up as ball player in a city directory. Everybody else was day laborer or miner or something like that. And, and that says something about the standing he had in the community. Uh, continuing the story, though, on the photographs, I wanted a picture of him very, very much. And uh, 
they had, they had never seen one. So I got on a computer one night and I'm fiddling with Ancestry.com and just running Google searches and this, that, and the other. And I came across almost by accident an obituary out of uh, out of the uh, up in the Midwest for a Buford James Meredith III. And I thought, oh my God, could this possibly be? And as it turned out, it was a descendant of his. Uh, his. He had three sons that were children when he died. And I wound up contacting a man named Derek Maffitt in Clarksville, Tennessee, who was his grandson. And just total luck. And we talked on the phone that night, and he got a picture of of Meredith in uniform, and I'm as proud of having that in the book as I think just about anything else I got in there, because there had never been a picture of him published before, to my knowledge. And that's fantastic, because this is, you know, this is part of the sort of, you know, the the forgotten history. I mean, especially with teams that that don't exist anymore or don't have any sort of, um, I guess you could say, direct roots to things that still are are around or alive today, and in the major leagues or or whatever, right? And and that's got to be hugely satisfying, especially, I guess, when you're you become so engrossed and invested, I guess, in in the process, right? I mean, you're a journalist by trade, so you're already afflicted with that uh, with that disease, right? Yeah, right. That was so so satisfying to to for that family to get that recognition of the grandfather who that had been lost because he died at such a young age and. And and you know his children, they were children literally when he died. So that was that was a very satisfying thing to be able to give his family that connection there. Yeah. So I mean, I you know, I think that clearly there are players that 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 people do remember, but who usually you know went on to other sort of things or other platforms, right? So you know around that time, of course, was the great Satchel Page, right? Which you know everybody you know who leave even has a passing understanding of baseball, right, certainly knows the name Satchel Page and how, you know, ultimately great and long-lived his career and, and it was, right? But th- these actually, those early, those 1920s years, those late mid, mid to late 1920s, that was actually, I think, his second or maybe third, maybe first, I guess, team that he played on was the Bl- Birmingham Black Barons, no? It was the second. It was the second. He had, he had started in 26 with the Chattanooga team. And uh, it was interesting to me, uh, and, and then he then he was with Birmingham for the next four years after that. And it was interesting researching those early years on on Satchel because uh, it, you quickly find out that contrary to popular stories, no Satchel did not pitch a no hitter every game. You know, which is sort of the legend that well, if he were, if he, were around, view, if he were around, he may debate that. But but that you know, <laughs> right, right. Well, then I found the very first game he pitched in Birmingham. I found a box score of it in 1926. And, uh, you know, my mind immediately doesn't come back to me as to how the game came out. Uh, He had a creditable performance, but it was not a shutout. It was not a no-hitter, but a creditable performance. And then... uh, and I had seen something actually written about him shutting out the Black Barons in Birmingham the first time he was in the city, and this was all a lot of hooey. It simply wasn't true. But he had four very good years with uh, Birmingham, uh, 27, 28, 29, and 30. And uh, it, his record was decent. 
Uh, he was over 500. Uh, he was he was obviously an enormous talent, and it was recognized in the newspaper accounts of these games. And most of these accounts are in white newspapers, and they're recognizing the talent that this guy has, and he's becoming an attraction early on. Uh, I, I guess it's the, probably the nickname is part of it, and then just that long, lanky figure of his, and he begins to come up with these very quotable remarks, although you don't see them coming up so much in the newspapers as later on when uh, book writers get hold of them, you know. But it was fun researching him. Well, besides him, right, and obviously that that out out uh, outsized personality certain certainly didn't hurt. He certainly played to, I guess, you know the the white audiences and sort of the entertainment uh, kind of, I guess, spectacle of of his of his abilities. But you know, I I, I guess I sort of want to get him more into the the heart of the matter. And, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but you mentioned earlier how a lot of uh, information was either wrong or incorrect, or frankly just not fully fleshed out or, or just outright missing when it came to a lot of these players and, and maybe even some of the, the games play and, and, and whatnot. And and the, the largely white press, right, okay, you know, they, they notice a satchel page, but how much of the, uh, shall we say, segregated sort of viewpoint, I guess, of life contributed to perhaps these large and uh, outsized gaps, I guess, of, of knowledge and or coverage uh, of what was going on with the Black Parents and or the, the Negro Leagues? Well, you know, the, the, the coverage was so inconsistent. The, the Birmingham newspapers, uh, the Birmingham News in particular, which I worked for for a number of years, actually carried box scores on the games in the 20s, which was which was wonderful. It ended, that indicated, I think, as much the popularity of baseball as it did anything else at that time. But they carried box scores on the Black Barons games, and they reported on them. And uh, they usually every every game had a small write-up of some kind with the box score on it. But uh, th- there was there were just so many interesting players in that time period. There, uh, one of the most fascinating ones to me was a guy named named uh, Forrest Wing Maddox, and the wing came from the fact that he only had one arm. He was ahead of Pete Gray and, and that sort of thing. And Wing had was missing his left arm just above the elbow. He would catch a fly, but he played, pitched, and he played outfield. He would catch a ball in the outfield with his, the glove in the right hand, and then he flips the ball up in the air, jettisons the glove, grabs the ball as it comes back down and fires it in. And there were more than more than one report of him nailing some runner at the plate, because this guy figures this one-armed guy is not going to be able to throw him out. You know, he was a fascinating figure to me. He died at, at like 29 years old of tuberculosis. How did players like him? I mean, you mentioned, you know, only a very small handful, if not just maybe one or two, kind of being effectively known professionally as a profession as a quote-unquote ball player. What was the sort of average player's life? It, it does sound like it was sort of a sort of a, a day night uh, kind of existence where the day job, you know, paid the bills and then the night, quote unquote, or weekend job was was playing ball. I, I'm just curious as to and I guess, I, you know, even in, in organized, quote unquote, baseball, 
you know, the money was not necessarily uh, gigantic or, or spread out, I guess, across all the town. But I got to imagine it was even uh, less so uh, in the Negro League. So maybe a little bit of a sense of sort of the, I don't know, average uh, life experience of the average baseball player in, in, in the Negro Leagues and or the Black Barons in particular, from what you could tell. Well, you know, I think that I don't think there was other than an obvious disparity in in money. Uh, there was that much difference in lifestyle for the white or the black players. Uh, most of these guys had to have off jobs in the off season. You know, they weren't making the kind of money ball players make today at a professional level. They couldn't live a whole year on what they made playing baseball for five months or so. So most of them had had other jobs in the off season. And, uh, but obviously uh, white guys are going to make more money than black guys in those days. So yeah, I think it was tougher on the black players than it was on the white players. How about the sort of the game experience, right? In particular, the stands and, and the attendance and that kind of stuff. Were you able to discern uh, sort of how relatively popular uh, the Black Barons were, uh, and I'm, I'm talking really more before they got into the Negro and American League, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, I, I'm curious as sort of how the how the gates were, you know, how was the revenues, and you know, how was the how was the club run, you know, was it quite the thing, uh, or was it sparsely attended, or, or somewhere in between that? Well, I think the, in the in the twenties, I think it did very well. When you got into the thirties, there were years where the attendance wasn't that good, and and the organizational structure. Uh, suffered. Uh, there was even a year there in the 30s when they were not even the Black Barons, they were the Giants because of the organization and ownership had, had kind of destructed. But uh, almost in every every pregame story in the newspaper saying that they're going to play Saturday or Sunday or whenever it was, every single story said there will be a section reserved for white patrons. And it had that kind of popularity. It said, I think some of this, uh, uh, to a great extent, is the fact that baseball was the national pastime. And a baseball game was a baseball game, and, and people were going to go out and watch it. And so that included white people going to the black games. And, and black accommodations were made for them. And this was not just Birmingham. Other cities throughout the South the same way. But I think Birmingham probably pulled bigger crowds than most of the other cities. Yeah, very interesting. I, I wonder if that's sort of also tied into, I guess, Birmingham's, uh, I want to call it an inferiority complex, but I mean, as we, as I hinted at with the football teams and all the challenger leagues and stuff, right, there's always sort of that being on sort of on the cusp, I guess, of uh, of being sort of, quote unquote, big league, right? We've seen it with, say, oh, yeah. a city like Kansas City, right, which certainly climbed over the hump in the 60s and the, in the early 70s, right? But, you know, I, Birmingham, obviously, years later has had its fair share of of major league opportunities with world hockey association tons of football leagues uh, i wonder if this is sort of early evidence of that where to your point you know this is baseball at at arguably the highest level some would argue even higher level of organized baseball which was a relatively uh scarce thing around the country generally let alone in the south well you know the i think the birmingham situation you have to go back to Birmingham and Atlanta come to a fork in the road and Atlanta takes the progressive route. Birmingham stays in place and Atlanta became known as uh, this, they had some slogan, the city that did away with race or something. I forget exactly how, what the phraseology was on it, but 
you know, Atlanta moved forward, and, and the, the result of that over the decades was major league sports, and Birmingham never got them because Birmingham uh, just kind of stagnated to a certain extent. All right, what's this? Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon, of course. Mack Weldon is the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. And, uh, you know, they, they go out on a limb, Mack Weldon does. They claim that their stuff is better than whatever you're wearing right now. That's uh, that's pretty bold. Uh, them Them's fighting words for sure. But you know what? In the case of Mack Weldon, it's absolutely true. I Trust me, because I've been wearing a whole bunch of Mack Weldon stuff over the last number of months. And I can I can vouch for for just about all of it, frankly. And they're designed, frankly, the uh, Mack Weldon uh, offerings to be the most comfortable underwear, uh, undershirts, socks, shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, you name it. Anything in the in the realm of basics, Mack Weldon has got you covered. And uh, not only does Mack Weldon's underwear and socks and shirts look good, they perform well, too. They're great for working out or, or going to work or going out on dates, you know, just everyday life. I, uh, I highly recommend them, and it, they're easy to purchase, and uh, it's a uh, it's it's a great way to sort of get all your basics covered uh, with one in one fell swoop uh, with our friends at Mac Weldon. Of course, we got you covered with a uh, a discount for you. Make sure you use the uh, promo code Good Seats when you go to MacWeldon.com, and you're going to get twenty percent off your first order. You bet twenty percent off your first order just visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code good seats now i you know beyond uh, a couple of the shirts and they've got a, a couple of great thermal uh long sleeve shirts i love those especially as the uh, the uh, months are getting colder now uh but i will tell you the uh, probably the most uh, uh underrated offerings in their collection of fine garb uh are socks they've got a tremendous selection and array of different forms of socks that there are uh, some really great uh, dress and, and casual looking socks uh, they're and they're high quality too i've been wearing them like i said for couple of months now they stay they stay high in your calf they uh, they don't lose their shape uh, and of course they're made with uh, along with a lot of their, their clothing that they've got at back weldon from their uh, proprietary antimicrobial technology which basically means they help eliminate odor doesn't mean you can't wash them you got to wash them of course guys but uh, in terms of uh, uh, their uh, staying power, shall we say, uh, it's uh, it's uh, amazing technology that keeps your clothes as fresh and clean as they can be uh, as they go on in their lifetimes. And again, we've got 20% off all of your purchases from your first order at MacWeldon.com when you enter the promo code GOODSEATS. So check it out again, MacWeldon.com, promo code GOODSEATS. All right, what's this? ExpressVPN. Hey, you know, whether you're a supporter of the Red Devils or the Blues or the Hammers or the Gunners or perhaps like me, the Bournemouth Cherries. Hey, the easiest place to watch all of those games from the English Premier League uh, this season is with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN allows you to access EPL streams from around the world for a fraction of the price it might normally cost. Here's how it works. Use ExpressVPN to buy an 11 sports account. ExpressVPN lets you spoof your location so you can appear like you're in, say, Taiwan and purchase your account for just over two bucks a month. Now, I live in the Chicago area and I travel a whole lot and I can't always watch the Cherries when they're playing live uh, or for the uh, for that matter, the championship where I'm, I'm following Hall City to see if they can finally get over the hump and get into the Premier League themselves. Uh, so what I do is I use ExpressVPN to stream. 
ExpressVPN comes with apps for computers and mobile devices and digital media, media players, he says, like Fire TV. And of course, and especially, you can use ExpressVPN every time you go online to keep all of your network data encrypted, secure, and safe from hackers. That's what VPNs are all about, for God's sakes. And ExpressVPN is the fastest one that I've tried, and it costs less than six bucks a month, as well as comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can enjoy all the fun that the English Premier League has to offer with the world's most trusted VPN, Express VPN. And of course, they've got a special offer for our listeners so you can protect your online activity and as well find out as you how you can get three free months at expressvpn.com slash good seats. That's expressvpn. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V as in Victor P-N.com slash good seats. And you're gonna get three free months with a one-year package. Again, visit expressvpn.com slash goodseats to learn more. And now, back to our conversation. So Rickwood Field, you, you mentioned it, you alluded to it. I mean, we might as well get into it in, in this in the early years. Not to sort of spoil the, the story here, but but Rickwood Field is 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 an icon. It is uh, uh, well preserved and it is it's part of uh, various national registries of history. This is one of, if not the first uh, baseball stadiums out there in the country, I believe, no? Well, it was uh, it was built and modeled on Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. But it's de- it debuted in, in 1910. Said next year we'll have the 110th anniversary of the ballpark. It's still used today. Uh, Miles College uh, uses it. Several high schools use it. And uh, there, are just, uh, there are other activities there, too. But it is still used as a baseball park. It's the oldest standing park in America where baseball is still being played. And they were not, though, the... During the 20s and 30s, well, and maybe even in the, their Negro American League years, which we'll get to in a moment, I do promise, um, were they sharing that stadium with other teams as well outside of uh, Negro League baseball, or was it basically theirs for the season? And, and no, it, well, the field was owned by the Birmingham Barons, the white team of the Southern Association. But in, in most of the Southern cities in those years, uh, the black teams played in those ballparks. They leased it for, for their games. And in fact, uh, Chris Fullerton, who uh, wrote a dissertation and a book on the early Negro Leagues and the Black Barons, the name of his, his book was Every Other Sunday, which implied that when the white team was on the road, the black team got the ballpark. And uh, that's a little bit simplistic, but it sort of expresses what way it operated, you know. Well, what was that relationship? I mean, how how good or or frayed was it uh, between uh, those two teams? I mean, was it cordial? Was it well coordinated? Was it we'll give you what we have left over? Was it you know uh, a sharing of equals? I mean, was there any anything in your research that you were able to discern what the relationship was between those two teams? Because obviously that that has a, an important role to play in terms of quality of dates and attendance and maintenance and all that kind of stuff of the field. 
Well, you know, the the, uh, the black team's getting the leftovers on schedule. I mean, that's the way it's going to be uh, as far as scheduling dates are concerned. And I think from the white standpoint, uh, what they really were concerned about was the color of green. They're making money off having these black clubs play in their ballpark when, when the white team is on the road. And that was an important factor. And I, in fact, I think it was about it went maybe along about 1927, I forget the exact year offhand. Uh, in early spring, a group of white people who lived in the neighborhood around Rickwood Field went to a city council meeting and complained about uh, the ball games because they, they felt the women felt threatened for some reason or other, and people were drinking, and, and these, they just objected to it and wanted the, uh, the city to do something about about and stop them from playing there. Well, obviously, it, this was not expressed in the story, but reading between the lines, that's a lot of money for the white baseball team, and <laughs> this this did not fly. The season opened as normal in spite of that. That's why I say money spoke louder than anything else at that point. How about um, if, from your uh, your readings of of the box scores and the coverage of both of these teams? Right, this is. Was there any I don't know perception of which baseball was actually better? Right, I mean, it would seem to me as a as an armchair historian, right, and and that's being charitable, that the quality of play of some, if not all, of the Negro League games was probably, if not on par, maybe better, frankly, than that of the minor league kind of version that was coming in through on the sort of white side of things. Was that obvious maybe, or am I maybe reading too much into it? Or I guess, which quality of baseball would you say was better? Or was there no way to really tell? I, I would imagine it would be the Negro. I don't know that there's any way to tell really, but it, it was interesting to me that you would see white sports writers would uh Referred to it, but you know, in a, in a pregame story, would say something to the effect at times that uh, you'll see a really good brand of baseball out there with these uh, Negro players out there. there. There was a a cordial respect there, but I don't I, I ascertaining which had the better quality overall. That's an impossibility. Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm yeah. just trying. I guess I'm just struggling to sort of see. It was the the Barons uh, were what single A, double A? I forgot what. No, they were double A. Double A. Okay. Double so, a. yeah, and I, I guess it depends on the teams, and I guess it depends on your read of history and whatnot. But I, you know, I, I by many accounts, uh, I, I think a, a lot of the Negro League players and historians would would venture to say that uh, the quality of play was uh, at the very least on par with that, if not on many occasions better than a double-A organized baseball kind of league, right? Oh, I, well, I, yeah, I think that uh, other historians have come up with enough games between uh, uh, Negro League teams and white teams to show that there was a parity at a certain level there, you know. Well, all right. Why don't we uh, talk about sort of this, I guess let's call it the sort of second and and, and sort of uh, long longer uh, phase and then ultimately the ending phase of of the Black Barons in particular. And this is this Negro American League, and which uh, for them started in 1940. They I guess they made the jump from the Southern League back again up to, but not now, the, the Negro National League, which had 
gone away and come back in a different form. But now this thing called the Negro American League. Maybe you can give a little bit of background as to all of that scenario, because I think it's confusing to the average Joe. Well, the, the Negro Southern Leagues last year, uh, prior to the, the World War II, was 1936. In 37, the Black Barons w- w- went in with the Negro American League, played 37, 38, and then 39. They had another uh, ownership disaster, and they had no team at all and came back in 1940. Uh, and it, the interesting thing to me, a couple of interesting things about the, those 37, 38 seasons, the manager was a guy named uh, A.M. Walker, Andrew M. Walker. And this man does not show up anywhere in any baseball references of any kind except for these years in Birmingham, these two years. Uh, nobody's ever heard of him. There's no, no explanation of who he is, why he's there. The closest thing that I found was that he was possibly related to a numbers racketeer uh, named Fredo Walker in Birmingham at the same time. But this man is manager for two years, and then he's gone. And nobody, I, I just, uh, no other historian has found anything about him, who he is, where he came from, or anything. It's just a, a really strange, strange thing, a, a real enigma. And, and there's another one that shows up in the later years that we can talk about in a minute. But uh, that that was just one of the real peculiarities of that period. The same thing at that period, though, Birmingham won, had one of its most outstanding players, an outfielder named David Watley. Uh, he had tremendous speed, tremendous power. He, he was nicknamed Hammerman. He was also nicknamed Speed. Uh, to give you a, a, a quick look, this in 1936, 37, and 38, his batting averages were... 403, 408, 442. This guy was for real. And then when Birmingham folded in 39 and didn't have a team, he went over to, a, to another team in the Negro American League. And uh, uh, he, he had a few years after that, but he never reached that kind of level again. But he has probably had the single, the single best career with Birmingham over a three-year period that anybody ever had in there. He had a game in uh, 1938. It was one of these wild high-scoring games that Birmingham won 18-9 to over St. Louis. Wadley hit for the cycle, but he was perfect 6-6 six for six that day. He had a home run, a triple, and two doubles. I think it's probably the single greatest hitting performance ever by any black baron. He was just a tremendous baseball player. Uh, Fascinating, one of the fascinating players from that forgotten period, as I call it. But then, then we get into the 40s, and, and we have a dynasty then. Yeah, so before we get to that dynasty, so I I, need, I stand corrected. So 37 and 38, this was sort of their re-emergence into another of the senior leagues, if you will, the, the Negro American League. What happened in 39 to the Black Barons that, they went dark, if you will, for that season. You you called it a collapse or they whatever, but they came back the next year. Yeah, management, ownership, whatever. It just uh, whatever happened behind the scenes. 
uh, I didn't find much about it because, you know, the white newspapers really weren't particularly interested in management problems of some Negro business at that time. So it was never really able to pin anything down. But then uh, Tom Hayes comes along in 1940 and, and the team is resurrected. And, of course, he owns it for about 12 years. And they have these, this tremendous run in the 40s there. So who is who is this Tom Hayes guy? Uh, all I can really tell is that he he was, I guess, from Memphis. He was sort of in the funeral home business. Uh, where? Who, yeah, he was why? Very successful businessman and uh, loved baseball, loved sports, and uh, made a lot of money. He he had a private plane that he flew around in some in, in the later years of his ownership, and uh, he he had a working relationship and partnership with Abe Saperstein who had founded the Harlem Globetrotters also. Although Saperstein doesn't show up much, you know, up out front in Birmingham papers and everything, but it's noted that he's part of the ownership and part of the the management team with the Black Barons in those years. And, uh, yeah, that tremendous, tremendous run there in the 40s. Never won the World Series, but, my goodness, they won – three championships and, and competed the whole way. All right. Before before we get into to some of that, this Abe Saperstein thing is, is very interesting to me and was kind of an eyebrow raise for me. Obviously, him being very uh, a large part of the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, we've had a couple of conversations around sort of his early uh, years in challenging the basketball establishment, not only with the Trotters, but uh, this thing called the National Basketball League uh, a precursor or a, a tributary, if you will, into today's modern-day NBA. From what you can tell, what would this uh, uh, white Jewish guy from, I think, New York or Chicago uh, be interested in having a part ownership in a fledgling and sometimes foundering, frankly, going from a minor league to a, a major league, uh, Negro League baseball team uh, in his sort of uh, sports empire, I guess? Well, I just think you know, think there was money there at that point. But the t- I think the time he comes in, Hayes has come in, and he's a substantial businessman. He knows what he's doing, and so this was was good timing there. Probably is what I'm thinking. And uh, the tr- tremendous re- uh, working relationship, obviously very successful for that time period. Well, were they were they then part of, 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 if you will, spending more money? I mean, what was it about the team around that time, aside from this new ownership that reinvigorated, that made the Black Bears that, that much a more dominant and dynastic team for the next couple of years? Well, they must obviously have paid fairly decent salaries for the time because one of the things I noticed in the 40s was the, the way that there was a nucleus of that team that was maintained over in that time period there. For example, uh, Pepper Bassett, catcher, was there from 44 to 52. Uh, catcher Herman Bell was there except for one year, 43 to 50. Uh, Tommy Sampson, 40 to 47. John Britton, the third baseman, 44 to 49. They, they kept these people, and uh, which would, and uh, Lyman Bostock, senior. Uh, playing first base. When World War II starts, of course, he goes into military service like so many others did. But Bostock was fortunately stationed at Fort McClellan in Anniston, which is about an hour from Birmingham. 
And there were many weekends when he played doubleheaders because he could get leave from the Army and could drive, get a bus over to Birmingham and play a doubleheader over there. It was the ability to have this nucleus of a team that stayed together during that, that time for so long there. Well, Jimmy Lee Newberry pitcher was there from 1943 to 50. Uh, I think that was the key to, to Birmingham's success was being able to maintain a, a you know, a consistent lineup. And, of course, I think that Hayes had to be paying them pretty good money to keep them from jumping to other teams. How about the war, right? So, you know, for, obviously Birmingham uh, had uh, two great seasons uh, in the league in 43 and 44, winning the pennants that, those years. Uh, they went on to the uh, the Negro World Series uh, those years, losing both times to the Homestead Grays. How much of the war effort uh, uh, obviously was a huge drain on organized baseball, but on the Negro League side, was it as pronounced in terms of its um, uh, siphoning of talent, or was it more of a refuge uh, in terms of uh, the talent in, in baseball? I think it was it was probably comparable to what was happening with the white players, but I think that possibly some of the Negro League players were older and therefore not quite as susceptible to the draft as the white ones were. Because a lot of these guys have been around a while. And uh, Birmingham had had a number. I think they had eight or ten that actually served in World War II. But then they had these lucky situations like Lyman Bostock, who was available to play a good deal during the war. Yeah, many people may know Lyman Bostock, uh, the uh, the junior, uh, if, uh, of, uh, uh, who played for places like, I guess, the Chicago White Sox and a bunch of other other teams. We mentioned a couple of folks, right, uh, uh, as we sort of get into the 40s and stuff, obviously Satchel Page, and you mentioned a few others, but there were three or four Hall of Fame players that 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 graced the diamonds of uh, uh, of Rickwood Field and, and in Birmingham, uh, aside from Satchel Page, uh, as well as some other players who have never reached the, the Hall, but, but were standout players and notable. Um, any names that sort of uh, stuck out in your mind, both uh, recognized or maybe unsung? You mentioned a few of the unsung ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, a while back, Larry Lester, who I consider the preeminent Negro Leagues historian, asked a lot of us researchers to put together all-star teams for the, the teams that we were, were most familiar with. And so when I started putting the, the Birmingham team together, I had a real dilemma with Piper Davis, what to do with him. And what I found wound up doing on my team was I named him Utility Man Extraordinaire All-Time MVP because every time somebody else got hurt, Piper moved over to that position. And he was just an absolutely extraordinary baseball player. And uh, he was the part, uh, part of the glue that held those 40s teams together because when someone else was hurt, he could go fill in at that position and would do do so forever how long it took there. He did not play one position position uh, enough over those eight years that I felt comfortable putting him in that position on the all-star team. So I just made him super utility man. Uh, another player, uh, at that Jimmy Lee Newberry was outstanding pitcher at that time. Uh, the uh, Tommy Sampson, the second baseman, was there for eight years. And uh, one of those World Series years, 
they probably lost the series because he and two other players were severely injured in an automobile wreck. A drunk driver hit them, and they were severely injured, and Sampson did not cover. He really recovered for more than a year after that, but he was a tremendous second baseman, and, and I think they probably would have had a good shot at the World Series that year if they hadn't lost those guys in that wreck. Uh, interesting and, and tragic. Yeah, two other Hall of Famers, too. Mule Suttles and the great Willie Wells uh, also. Uh, Suttles more from the uh, from the 20s sort of version of the team. And, and Willie Wells uh, inducted in 97, who played uh, for a season in, in 41, which is arguably the uh, sort of lead-up into some of their better years uh, as, uh, as a, as a yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, he was there for a year. Not really a factor like Artie Wilson and, and some of the others that there during that period but uh yeah they had a lot had a lot of names go through birmingham over the years there of outstanding players that were maybe there only for a year or so and it's like satchel page was there for only four years way back in the 20s but your average person would probably connect him there as being in the 40s or something you know just make a mental connection to that Give me a sense now. So this is also now a really important time during the whole Negro League sort of uh, experience, right? Because the, the the Black Barons were doing quite well, uh, especially in the the latter part of the '40s. You know, winning uh, three pennants in the, the span of what about seven years or so, and winning in 1948, which turned out to be uh, the last uh, Negro American League uh, pennant when integration basically comes into major league or to baseball generally. I'm sorry, Jackie Robinson killed the Negro Leagues. I mean that that's that, that's a given. It, and you can see it if you if you look at the Chicago Defender, the uh, the top black newspaper, uh once Jackie is at Montreal, uh, the coverage of the Negro American League and, and the other leagues just starts plummeting. Uh Within a short period of time, two or three years, they're no longer running box scores. Uh, if they run one, it's of a game that Jackie played in. And uh, it's, it's a trade-off. You, you lose this great institution there, but then you gain uh, opening the major leagues up to a world of outstanding baseball players in the future. No doubt. And and, and certainly, you know, in, in hindsight, but that... That doesn't mean that the Negro Leagues went away overnight. I mean, far from it, right? They no, they did gone. not. No, they did not. And and there were some interesting years there. I'll mention a couple of characters that were involved in Birmingham in the uh, in the fifties, along about fifty seven or so, somewhere along in there. Uh, whites took over the ownership of the Black Barons, and there was a lot of uh, disgruntlement, obviously in the Negro and African-American community over the loss of ownership. So the white management that had taken over the team hired a man named Reverend Dwight Gatemouth Moore to be general manager of the baseball team to have this this uh, black presence on the, on the black baron, so to speak. And uh, this was an interesting character. He wrote, he was a radio disc jockey and preacher he rode around in a fire truck red Cadillac and uh, had been a, a singer in his earlier years and uh, it had been a popular nightclub singer and supposedly had a uh, conversion uh, 
on stage one night in Chicago and switched to gospel music at that point in his career. At any rate, the interesting story I found out about him was in, in 1940, there was a horrible tragedy in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, a place called the Rhythm Club burned down and 292 African-American partygoers were killed that night in this horrible fire. Uh, Gatemouth Moore was in the band. Uh, Walter Barnes and his Royal Creolians was the band that was played. Most of them died in the fire also. And Moore was supposedly one of the survivors, one of three band members that survived. And in an interview, he said, the only reason I survived is because I was outside in the bus with a girl. <laughs> and uh, that was his story of how he survived the fire. But he, he stayed with the team about half a year, and I don't know if it served his purpose of, of keeping the, the spirits of the black community up or not, because he quit about halfway through the season, said that it was taking too much time away from his preaching, and uh, he needed to get back to that. But yeah, that was an interesting situation. The other one that I found absolutely fascinating was a guy named Billy Joe Moore who won the batting championship in uh, 1956. And he he hit 373 to win the Negro American League batting championship. This was his first season. Uh, he had Nobody had seen him before that. The following year, he does not come back. There's no mention in any of the newspaper stories about what happened to him. I mean, here's this guy that hits 373, and, and it's like he fell off the face of the earth. And what I was finally able to determine was that he had been, at, in 1948, when he was 15 years old, he had been sent to Oklahoma State Penitentiary on a burglary charge. And while he was in prison, he became a standout in sports, uh, batting in the well over three in the high 300s. And uh, two New York Yankee scouts, Joe McDermott and Tom Greenway, who had discovered Mickey Mantle, uh, spot him. And they are able to get the state of Oklahoma to uh, give him a 60-day lead to play with the Grand Forks team in the Northern League for a salary of $250 a month. If he made good with the club, he would remain on parole until his scheduled release date a couple of years later. And if not, he goes back in the pokey. Well, he winds up in Birmingham in 1956, has this tremendous season, and then vanishes again. And, you, you know, I don't know what happened to him. Did, did Was there recidivism? Did he wind up back in prison? Did he die? And finally, a long internet search revealed that uh, he had been born in Clinton, Oklahoma in 1930, May the 28th, 1930, and supposedly died uh, in uh, 19, uh, I mean, my mind's going blank. When he died, uh, it was in uh, Oklahoma in another city. But it turned out that the obituary in the newspaper was actually for a lawyer who was born on the same date he was, a white lawyer who was born on the same date in Texas. And so whether or not Billy Joe Moore died or is still alive, whether he died in 2006 or is still alive or whatever, nobody will ever know, I guess. But he was the batting champion in the Negro American League, the only year that he played in the league there. 
And I just found that fascinating. That is fascinating. And I, you, I, I, this has got to be just tons of these kinds of stories. I So describe to me, though, the quality of play in the 50s then post-integration, right? So it's still going on, right? But it's not obviously, you know, most of the quote-unquote best players now are, are trying to get their their – their chops in the in organized baseball, uh, you know, outside of the Negro Leagues. Yeah, they are, and uh, you know, there's obviously was whether it's ever going to be formally admitted or not. There was obviously a quota system in those days on the Negro players that were going to be taken into organized ball, uh, but the better ones were getting their shot and going into the to the white minor leagues, and, and so the clubs and, and also the the financial support for the black teams is is faltering badly by this time the attendance is down uh they can watch games on television now and uh and so it's just dwindling badly and it gets down to a couple of years the negro american league in the 50s was only able to field four teams a couple of those years and there which indicates really how bad it had happened at that point and uh Teams like the uh, Chicago American Giants go away. Pittsburgh Crawfords die. The Memphis Red Sox eventually die. Uh, clubs that had been, you know, storied names, and then they just they aren't there anymore. So yeah, it, it was faltering very badly. And you, the players you're getting, uh, there are an awful lot of, of like. Uh, 18-year-olds being signed, this sort of thing, because the older players have either gone to the minor leagues or they're just not trying to do it anymore. They know they're not going anywhere with it. But that All-Star game, though, at Comiskey Park was still going on pretty strong, though, right? That was still a pretty big draw for as an event. Yeah, it was. But, you know, you could look at the attendance year by year and, and starting probably about 1950 or so, it's less every year. Each year, it's successively lower than it was the year before. And how about in Birmingham? Was the team kind of similarly just dwindling? I mean, the fact that there were only four teams near the end there, that Birmingham was one of them, it, that probably spoke to something, at least about pride and, and, and the fact that Birmingham probably still didn't mind having this team, did it? Well, they were holding on, but, you know, it was the same for them. Uh, I know the, the, uh, the sports writer, uh, Marcel Hobson, who wrote for the the black newspaper in Birmingham was constantly lamenting the poor attendance at ball games in in those fifties there, and uh, they they got where the, the team no longer uh, they had they had a long history of having spring training out of town, and then that stopped, and they're having it in the city, and uh, so you know it's it's obviously the money is going away. All right, there's one more asterisk I want to ask you about, and I wonder how much that you, you discovered this too, which to me was just uh, even more intriguing, which was the uh, the story of Charlie Pride. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fun, and uh, Charlie was a fun interview in, in doing all of this thing. He's a very gracious man, and I'd also had enjoyed his music long before I ever knew anything about his baseball career. Um, the apocryphal story has always been that he and Jesse Mitchell were traded for a bus, which was not exactly the case. Uh, they were with the Louisville Clippers, which was a new team in the league at that time and struggling for money. 
And Charlie said what the bottom line was, was they sold him and Jesse Mitchell for the Black Barons to get enough money to buy a team bus on there. And uh, the uh, the owner at that time was uh, Sue Bridgeport, who was out of Tennessee. And uh, his daughter, he was inducted in, into a the Limestone County, Alabama uh, Sports Hall of Fame some years ago. And uh, his daughter was interviewed at that time, and she said that uh, she remembered her dad, uh, Sue, taking her to Ryman Auditorium in Nashville to see Charlie Pride receive an award because his song, Kiss an Angel, Good Morning, had just hit the top of the charts at that time. And uh, he told her they had to get rid of Charlie not because of his playing ability, but because he kept everyone up all night on those long bus rides with his singing. And the players were always too tired to play the next day. I, I think that's another apocryphal story. But uh, Charlie was a, was a good journeyman pitcher and outfielder, but I think he had some injury problems too along the way. He came back to Birmingham in 1999 and sang the national anthem. Uh, a game at Rick Woods Field. Then. Well, I mean, you know, growing up in the '70s, right? Charlie Pride was all over the radio, and and uh, I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't even fancy myself even as a country music uh, uh, aficionado. But you know, obviously, a legend in country music circles and the pop charts too. And you probably could ask him that question yourself because he's still, God bless him, at 85, out there on. T- he is. He'll be out there on tour. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the, as we're recording this tomorrow night. He'll be at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. So, you know, maybe, right? maybe our audience can, uh, uh, yeah, during the autograph session after the show, can go up to Charlie and ask him, hey, indeed, was this true, like your autobiography said? <laughs> Did, were you traded for a, a, a team bus in Birmingham? Uh, and, and that's an interesting story because obviously he was, his, you know, his uh, talent obviously resides in, in, in music and his legendary career. But uh, I think uh, he had early aspirations of, of wanting to be a baseball player, and he certainly was trying to prove his mark in the minors and in the Negro Leagues. And uh, just an interesting and, and you know, yet uh, another curiosity story uh, that's part of this Birmingham Black Barons team. Maybe, uh, Bill, as a wrap-up here, you can give us a bit of a sense of sort of what what you sort of learned out of all of this process, all the interviews and all the research and, and all the doggedness and trying to sort of unearth and, and reveal some of the untold or, or just frankly old out-and-out missing stories uh, th- this is one of the longer lasting, with a gap or two for sure. But 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 in the in the uh, against the grand scheme of the, you know, the relatively checkered and and uh, always challenging history of the Negro Leagues, this was one of the more established and and solidly domiciled teams over that uh, that period of time. What what is the legacy? Do you think of this team and 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 some of its players and and the Negro Leagues generally, especially as we get to you know, celebrate uh, some, some, some centennials and some, some anniversaries coming up. Well, I, I titled the book uh, Black Baseball's Last Team Standing, and, and that's based strictly on the fact that in 1962, there was supposedly a playoff between Birmingham and Kansas City for the championship. Only two games were ever reported, and Birmingham won both of them. So I just use that to say they were the last team standing as far as any information is concerned. Uh, and I think that, in a sense, is, it is the legacy. They were certainly one of the best known of the uh, black baseball teams. Their barnstorming was widespread. 
uh, all over the country, or the Midwest in particular, up into Canada, the, the East Coast. They were they were just one of the best known teams, and uh, the and I think that's part of the legacy also that that it's fitting that they were the quote last team standing unquote from that standpoint. They were not the last Negro League baseball team. The Indianapolis Clowns continued to barnstorm for some years after that, but from a league standpoint, Birmingham was the last one. All right, then we can add another chapter to our uh, ever-expanding uh, book of, uh, of learnings around the, uh, the Negro Leagues. And uh, we thank our pal Bill for uh, enlightening us further about Birmingham's uh, history, in, in not only in the Negro Leagues, but baseball generally. Frankly, I've been something I've been quite ignorant about and of uh, for many years. And I, uh, I, as, as I try to do, I learn a ton of stuff, as I did this week. And you can learn more about the Birmingham Black Barons uh, by, of course, uh, procuring a copy of Bill's book called Black Baseball's Last Team Standing, the Birmingham Black Barons, 1919 to 1962. Yes, they were quite uh, the stalwart in, in, in baseball. And, uh, and Bill's book is the authoritative reference uh, for such. You can also, by the way, uh, maybe check out his book uh, on the Negro Southern League, which uh, we kind of alluded to a little bit, which is the uh, overview of the Negro uh, minor league known as the Southern League, and that was uh, from, what, 1920 to, I think, in 1950, 1951 or so. Uh, both of those books, of course, can be found wherever good books are found. But look, if you want to give us a couple of uh, pennies or nickels of love by doing so, why don't you search up our uh, our episode 100, 142. Sorry, I, I choke when I say that because 142 episodes of this show. Can you believe it? But uh, you search up this uh, episode featuring Bill Plot and me. And uh, you'll, of course, find some convenient links to these books right there. And when you do so, we'll get a couple of uh, a couple of nuggets of, uh, of goodness from uh, our pals at Amazon. And we appreciate that. It's a great way to help support the show and keep our lights uh, flickering through the holiday season to keep the show coming to you. And uh, while you're there at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, you can do a whole bunch of other stuff. You can find our other uh, great sponsors and, and maybe find a few uh, holiday gifts. Uh, why don't you? Uh, in the realm of forgotten sports, 503 Sports is there. Our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com is there. Uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, if you're looking for memorabilia, that's there. And, of course, StreakerSports.com. All of those fine folks will be found there on the website. Just click around there and, you know, hopefully uh, find a few things you might like for the holidays and uh, maybe something for yourself along the way, too. Uh, while you're doing that, make sure you check out our social media feeds. Of course, on Twitter, we're at social. Sorry, we're at social. We try to be social. You know, we do our best on Twitter. We're at Good Seats Still. Uh, let's see on uh, Instagram. You'll find us at Good Seats Still available. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook. Uh, let's see. You'll find our email link there, too. But you can do that to us directly if you'd like it. Hello at Good Seats Still available dot com. Make sure you spell it properly. And uh, let's see, you can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter. That's an awesome way to kind of keep abreast of what's going on and what the show's going to be for each uh, coming week. And um, that's, uh, you know, that's the best way to keep in touch with us as well. So by all means, do that. And uh, we will, uh, of course, see you next week. But before we do that, we want to say thank you, of course, to our good pal, Jerry Payne, uh, and uh, his friends at Podfly Productions. Uh, who help us with the production efforts for this show each and every week. And we appreciate their services as they do so. And of course, you can find out more about 
Jerry and Podfly at their website, and that's podfly.net. All right, we are done for this week. I look forward to sharing more fun and frivolity with you next week. Until then, take care. We love you. See you.